0: Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and I'm so excited to be continuing our series on Philippians. I've loved studying the passage we're going to look at this morning, but I've also been really challenged. I want to let the Word of God do the talking this morning. And so we're going to start by reading through this passage as a whole before we break it up into three sections. Today's passage is Philippians 3, verses 1 to 14. If you've got a Bible handy, why don't you grab it? I'd really like us to read this for ourselves this morning. So Philippians 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. "'though I myself have reasons for such confidence. "'If someone thinks they have reasons "'to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. "'Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, "'of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, "'in regard to the law, a Pharisee. "'As for zeal, persecuting the church. "'As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. "'But whatever were gains to me, "'I now consider loss for the sake of Christ.' What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for that which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This passage is awesome. So as I said, we're going to keep things really simple this morning. We're going to split this into three sections and see what Paul is saying to the Philippian church and what this means for us today. So Paul starts the passage with a reminder that the Philippians are to rejoice in the Lord. And he says that he doesn't mind saying the same things to them again because it's to protect them. I think this should be a clue to us that what Paul's about to say is clearly important enough to be said more than once. But man, the mood changes quickly, doesn't it? Paul's not messing about. Straight in, he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. As you probably could imagine, calling someone a dog in the first century was a pretty serious insult. So what was Paul so angry about? Who are these dogs and what have they been doing? Well, Paul's talking about a group of people who were introducing different teaching into the church. They were trying to say that unless you're circumcised, you couldn't be saved. For Paul, this is like a red rag to a bull. What they're basically doing was putting a plus sign after Jesus, as if he wasn't enough for their salvation. They were adding in their ceremonies and their personal effort to follow the law. Paul knew that this teaching was taking away from the value that Jesus should have in their hearts. But not only that, it was threatening their understanding of salvation itself. This wasn't new for Paul. Wherever he had travelled and set up churches, the Jewish leaders time and time again had tried to undermine what he was saying by trying to get people added into the Jewish faith. Circumcision was a symbol of this and so he wanted to push back hard. He describes them as mutilators of the flesh and just in case they haven't got the message he then tells them that it's people who boast in Jesus alone who are the true circumcision the covenant of circumcision was given to Abraham to confirm the covenant promises of God and Paul is saying that only people who put their faith in Jesus alone will receive his promises it can't be earned by any form of religion no matter how well they keep the requirements of the law There's only one who they should be boasting in, and that is Jesus. He describes anything else that we boast in as flesh. I found this really interesting because, I don't know about you, but when I see the term the flesh in the Bible, I usually think about the obvious sinful things, the things I should obviously be avoiding. Deceitfulness, sexual immorality, greed, But in this passage, Paul is showing us that whatever we do outside of God's grace is the flesh. Whether we're stuck in obvious sin or if we think we're doing pretty well, we are all flesh. Alec Moyter writes, it is not only man at his worst, but also man at his best who is flesh. And therefore, not yet acceptable before God. This statement is both sobering and incredibly freeing all at the same time. No matter how hard we try, we will never be acceptable before God. But this is the good news of the gospel. Boasting in Jesus alone means knowing our salvation is through faith in him alone and our satisfaction is in him alone. I'm really thankful that I've grown up in a church which preaches Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. I believe for many of us, we are secure in the knowledge that Jesus is all we need to have our sins forgiven, to be justified and to have life in heaven. But I don't think this means we can sit back and relax here. I'm certainly speaking to myself here too. We may well know and believe that we're justified by faith alone. But sometimes I think we can live like after that initial justification, we need to put a plus sign after Christ to be acceptable to him or maybe to those around us. I think it's a little bit like this. Imagine that you're invited to an event. This isn't any old event, it's a royal event at the palace. You go to the event, there's red carpet, paparazzi, celebs, the works. It's a banquet and as you sit at your table you're thinking to yourself, why am I here? I've done nothing to deserve this. The small, the small talk starts and quickly the conversation begins to become all about what people do and why they deserve to be at the table. Some people have done charity work. Others are leading professionals that are award winners. But as you look across the table, you notice there's one person who doesn't get involved in trying to prove themselves. You're intrigued. So you ask why they're at the party. They simply look at you and say, I was invited. You're thinking to yourself, yeah, that bit was pretty obvious. So you dig a little deeper. This time the man replies, my father invited me you suddenly realise a prince is sitting at your table. Let's notice the difference in what the prince says. He knows he cannot boast in what he's done to earn the right to be there. He doesn't need to justify to anyone why he's at the table because he's at the banquet at his father's invitation. I think sometimes after receiving the invitation of the good news of Jesus, We then go about trying to prove ourselves worthy of it, putting confidence in what we do. But let's realise that we are in fact like the prince in this story. We cannot boast in anything that we have done because we have been saved by the blood of Jesus at the invitation of God the Father. Being really honest with you, I think this is something which has really challenged me. I've no doubt in my mind that my salvation is in Jesus alone. And yet sometimes I find myself striving for all the wrong reasons and putting confidence in my own ability. I love being able to serve on our worship team, leading people in worship. But part of what God has been teaching me recently has been the need to refocus on my reasons for worship. To ensure that Jesus is at the centre and to worship from a place of confidence in him. I think we all need to keep a check on our hearts and our attitudes. What is it that we're adding? Is our confidence in our serving? Perhaps it's in our giving or a ministry that you're involved in. These are all good. They're biblical things. But we need to be constantly checking our hearts for where our motivation is coming from and what we have as supremely valuable in our hearts. If we're doing any of these things out of a feeling of duty or to be accepted by our Christian friends, we need to refocus on our gaze, on The only one who can save us and satisfy us. And that is Jesus. Let's move to take a look at what Paul says in verses four to nine. He says, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul has introduced this theme of confidence in the first few verses, but this is where he takes it to another level. After calling out the people who've been putting their confidence in their own efforts and their religion, he shows them that if that was a good idea, he'd have more confidence than most of them. Paul has all of these natural advantages. He was born into the law, circumcised on the eighth day, he had the national advantage of being a pure Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this wasn't the tribe of Judah, but it was the tribe of King Saul, Israel's first king, and it was the only tribe to stay faithful to David and his successors. He then goes on to talk about his family privilege, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was from godly, religious parents, and Not only was Paul born into these earthly advantages, but he'd worked hard to gain more. A Pharisee, meaning that he was part of the strictest form of Judaism and not just any old Pharisee. One who had righteousness from the law, which he described as blameless. Paul had worked hard to obtain such status. When he adds it all up, he realises it gave him no confidence before God. I'd like you to imagine this with me. Paul is sat in his house He's under arrest in Rome and he's reflecting back on his life. He's he's doing his accounts. Now, let's imagine that Paul's earthly advantages, his profits, were represented by money. When we see it like this, Paul had inherited a fortune. He was a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day, born from a well-regarded tribe of Israel. He'd come into the world doing pretty well. And not only that, he'd worked hard to earn more money. He'd kept the law and he persecuted Christians with zeal. Paul was living in the flesh and he was rich. But one day on the road to Damascus, he encountered Jesus and that changed everything. At that moment, it was as if the currency changed. Paul's pockets were full of coins, but now when he looked at them, he realised they were worth nothing. Later in this same chapter, Paul tells the Philippians that their citizenship was now in heaven. When Paul put his faith in Jesus, his citizenship changed. He became hidden in Christ with a new life in a new reality. And so the, the currency had changed. He, he realised that the old coins, they were worth nothing. So what was the exchange rate? Grace. When the exchange rate is grace, it doesn't matter how many coins you have to exchange. The payout is always the infinitely valuable gift of Jesus. By faith in Jesus, our account has been credited with his righteousness. This has nothing to do with what we've done and everything to do with what Christ has done for us. Paul understood this. He writes that he considers everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He knew that there was nothing more satisfying, nothing more fulfilling, nothing more valuable than knowing Jesus. And that meant everything else he considered a loss But he goes further than that, doesn't he? He says that he considers it garbage. These are strong words. Paul is saying that what he once considered as a way to gain acceptance from God has now become something worse than worthless. Just as with rubbish, he wants to get rid of it if it means getting more of Christ. Let's go back to our picture of Paul stood on the Damascus road. His pockets are full of coins. And he looks at them and he sees that they have no value in this new grace-given reality. But it's worse than that. The coins are heavy and burdensome. They are weighing him down and stopping him from pursuing Jesus in the way that he wants to. He's got to get rid of them so that he can follow Jesus into the freedom that he has called him into. Paul then tells the Philippians what the result of gaining Jesus is to be. He writes, to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Let's quickly take a look at what he means by the word righteousness. It means being in the right with God, that God would see us and say, yes, he is right. He is lacking nothing. He is holy and blameless in my sight. How many of us feel like we could say that about ourselves? This is the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We are all sinful and unclean. This means we cannot come into the presence of a holy God. Nothing we do will make us acceptable and right with him. And so we're destined for separation from him for eternity. And yet God has made a way for us to be reconciled to himself. He sent his son, a man, to bear our guilt and our sin, He lived a perfect life and died an excruciating death on the cross. His blood was poured out for for the forgiveness of our sins and on the third day he rose again. Defeating death and making a way for us to have eternal life with him. The Bible tells us that we were dead in our sins. This means that we could do nothing to save ourselves. But we were called before the creation of the world and as we put our faith in Jesus, turning from our old way of living, we are made alive in Christ. We're given a new life, hidden in Christ, meaning we've been given his righteousness, not by anything that we've done, but by faith in him alone. Being honest, I think oh, I've all too often lost the gravity of what this means. Let's stop to consider this for a minute. This, this can never get old. This is the best news in the world. To truly understand how good this news is, we've got to see ourselves apart from God. Sinful, broken, alone and destined for eternal suffering and separation. But how much sweeter is the gospel that by putting our faith in Jesus and repenting of our old way of living, we are made righteous, acceptable, loved and destined for eternal joy with relationship with God our Father. My greatest desire for each one of you is that we would see This for the life-changing truth that it is. Never has the term life-changing been more relevant. We sort of use that phrase as hyperbole to sort of describe something good, maybe something bad. But this is actually life-changing. Like when we choose to accept this truth and follow Jesus, we actually have a new life in him. As Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In the next few verses, Paul shows us what this new life is going to look like. He was consumed by the truth of what Jesus had done for him. And I think that's what leads him to write this in verses 10 to 14. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for that which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul wants to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings. But what does he mean when he says he wants to know Christ? Well, I think he means more than simple head knowledge. Yes, to hear about the truth of Christ is part of knowing him. But as we know from our earthly relationships, to know someone means so much more than that. Knowing someone means having a deep personal relationship with them. It means going through things together. This is the sort of knowing that Paul's talking about. He wants to know Jesus by experiencing what he experienced. Suffering for the sake of Christ is such a big theme in the New Testament. We could pick out any number of passages, entire books, which are all about how as followers of Christ, we are called to suffer for his name. As verse 11 says, Paul knew that the end goal was resurrection from the dead but on the way there he was called to su- to participate in Christ's sufferings. Paul doesn't say this with some vague sense of thinking wow well, yeah I'd probably be willing to suffer for Christ. It's been his life. He's been beaten, persecuted, arrested on multiple occasions. He's literally writing this whilst under arrest and so I think when he says that he wants to participate in Christ's sufferings, that would have landed in the hearts of the Philippians who knew what he'd gone through. Being called to suffer for the sake of Christ isn't something we can put to one side. Jesus himself says, pick up your cross and follow me. Part of this is dying to our old self, turning from the things of this world. This is a key to our salvation, but it also carries an understanding that To follow Jesus is to suffer with him. I'm going to say that again. To follow Jesus is to suffer with him. With him. We don't live our lives looking for ways we can suffer for Christ. But we have his spirit living in us. And so as we follow Jesus and we know him more, we should expect to suffer. But we don't do that alone. We have the resurrected Jesus who knows what it is to suffer walking with us. How amazing is that? Paul had known the reality of walking with Jesus as he suffered for his faith. And I think this is what makes these final few verses even more mind-blowing. He has lived a life of faith. He's getting old and he's coming towards the end of his life. But Paul isn't sat back, reflecting back on his life, reminiscing of the good old days on his missionary journeys. He's, He's not sat back thinking fondly of the memories he made with Timothy and the guys or... Even of the many people he'd seen to come to believe in Jesus. To be honest, I think if he had been, I don't think we'd be blaming him, would we? We'd be saying, yeah, Paul, you've earned it. The legacy Paul was leaving behind was incredible. He'd literally brought the gospel to the non-Jewish world. But Paul saw it differently. He says that he's not yet achieved the goal or taken hold of it, and so he'll forget what is behind and strain towards what is ahead. There's an urgency in these verses. Paul is consumed by what Jesus has done for him and the call on his life. He knew that this was a journey that didn't finish. Just as a runner doesn't slow up before the finish line, he wasn't willing to sit back and relax. This is, it's so challenging. Paul's speaking out against complacency and comfort. When Martin kicked off this series, he told us how the Philippian church was a mature, established congregation and how there were some parallels for us at Barnabas. The fact that we are an established church is amazing. It allows us to bless other ministries and to be a voice for justice. But let's not miss Paul's warning here. As individuals and together, we need to keep looking at our lives to see where we've become complacent or too comfortable. The good news of the gospel is too good to keep to ourselves. We are carrying a message which could change the eternal destiny of the people we know. I want to be brutally honest with you. This is something I've got really wrong. I've been afraid of what people will think of me. Scared they won't want to know. I've asked God to make me desperate to tell people. And I'm not sitting here telling you that I've got all this sorted. Because I really haven't. But God, by His grace, is gently doing something in me. As I seek to know Christ more, I'm becoming more hungry for others to know Him too. I want to end this morning by leaving you with just three questions. I really want us to be proactive this morning, and so in a second, press pause and go and grab something to write on. If you're anything like me, you will not remember these questions, but. I want us to be praying and asking the Holy Spirit to prompt each of us this week about these three things. So, question number one. What are you boasting in? One of my favourite verses in the Bible is John 3.30. This is John the Baptist talking about Jesus and he says, He must become greater, I must become less. I think this resonates with me because I so want that to be the slogan for my life. But so many times I find myself thinking or acting in a way which is much more like he must become greater than well, I'd like to be seen to be doing pretty well too. What we see in the passage in Philippians Paul is Paul's desire to see Jesus glorified above everything else. For Paul, boasting in Christ meant putting no confidence in anything other than Jesus alone. He knew that no amount of effort or religion could save him. And so he put no confidence in anything that he'd achieved and he laid it all on Jesus. So let's be checking our hearts. Is our confidence in Christ alone? Question number two, what do you value most? In verse eight of today's passage, Paul's talking about the surpassing worth of Christ. As we heard from Terry a few weeks ago, This theme of what matters most is something which runs throughout the book of Philippians. Paul is desperate for the Philippians to know the value of Jesus, for them as individuals and as a church. In Jesus, we have the most incredible treasure imaginable. His love is all consuming and he's made a way for us to be righteous in the father's eyes. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells us the parable of the treasure and the pearl He tells the crowds that the kingdom of God is a treasure that you would sell all that you had to buy. The gospel is a treasure worth everything that we have. Our security, our comfort, our money or our time. To repent and lay these things at Jesus' feet is what it means for Jesus to be the Lord of our lives and the King of our hearts. I don't know about you, but I want to live for that. Willing to put anything down, whatever the cost, if it means lifting Jesus higher. And that brings us to the third question for today. What areas have you become comfortable or complacent? What really struck me when I was thinking about Paul's urgency was how much he had already achieved. And yet he wasn't willing to sit back and take his foot off the gas. I wanna encourage you that if you're a Christian, whatever age or stage of life you're at, God has a purpose for you. He has called you by name and equipped you with his spirit to move powerfully through you. Let's not look back at what we've achieved or settle for what's comfortable and easy. Let's refocus ourselves on how amazing Jesus is. I could tell you, Over and over again to become urgent for the spreading of the gospel or that you should become uncomfortable for Christ. That's missing the point. Our urgency and our desire to give up earthly comforts comes from our passion for Jesus. Understanding that by his blood we have been made right with God. That we have a loving father who has pursued us and has invited us into eternal life with him. He has equipped us to walk with him, with his spirit living in us and is calling us to surrender ourselves to him. Where we will find ultimate satisfaction and ultimate joy. I want to end this morning by praying together. So let's pray to finish. Father God, I I thank you for your word. I thank you that you speak today, that, that we can hear your voice through your word. Father, I pray that as we finish today, you will be moving in our hearts by your spirit. That you'll be changing us and stirring us. Father, we want to be changed by your word. We don't want to be changed by some things that I've said. But we want to be shaped and moulded by your word. Father, I ask, will you come by your spirit now? Will you bring up things that we need to hand over to you? Help us to put our confidence in you alone. Will you stir up a passion for your name and for your glory? Will you break our hearts for the beauty of the gospel? Lord, break our hearts for the lost, for those in our street, those in our family, our friends. Father, we want to see them come to know you. Will you burden us with a desire for them to know you? Holy Spirit, will you move in us? Will you give us your love for them? Help us to show your love for those around us. Help us to to understand your grace and your mercy more each day. Lord, let our hearts overflow with a passion for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.